0: I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Luke, to which we return after some time, and we're going to focus on verses 33 to 39, which follows uh, the extraordinary account of an extraordinary work of God in the saving of Levi, and historically, This interchange between the Lord and his questioners takes place in the context of the festivities that are held in light of what God has done for Levi. Let me read verses 33 to 39, remembering that the feast is in the background when they come and ask about fasting. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days." He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. No one, after drinking old wine, desires new for he says, the old is good. Now We sang earlier, come we that love the Lord and let our joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord and thus surround the throne. We sang that because Christians are a joyous people. And being a Christian affords us lasting and true joy. We also sang, uh, the sorrows of the mind be banished from the place. Religion never was designed to make our pleasures less. I don't know if you ever thought about that, that the Christian religion was never designed to make us miserable. It was never designed so that we we would walk around all morose, head, head hanging down. On the contrary, as we sang, the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets. There are great joys in the Christian life, and knowing the Lord means that joy is our birthright. Now, the Pharisees didn't understand that. Excuse me, and they were troubled by the festivities that were going on in the home of Matthew, the tax collector. A great feast was being held because the great Savior had done a great work of salvation for this great sinner, Levi. You can read about that in verses 27 to 32. And we know from the rest of Scripture, especially Luke chapter 15, that When a sinner is saved, heaven rejoices. Angels sing. And in this case here, people are celebrating. But the Pharisees were agitated. And even some amongst uh, the disciples of John the Baptist were troubled. And you can read about that in uh, Matthew chapter 9. And here in our passage, the Lord responds to their question about fasting and the fact that they're troubled that the followers of Jesus are eating and drinking and feasting. Whereas we, and even the followers of John the Baptist, we fast, and you're feasting, and he's troubled. They're troubled by this, and we have our Lord's response here. And as we think about his response, we're going to consider three points. First, a joyous people, that's who we are. A troubled time. Those are the days in which we live. A new era, that's the context in which we exist as the followers of Jesus. So let's think about the first point, a joyous people. Christians are a joyous people. Now, to be sure, Christians aren't always a joyous people. Perhaps you know a man by the name of Oliver Wendell Holmes. He was a a member of the U.S. Supreme Court, for some 30 years. And uh, reflecting on his life and his choice to pursue law, uh, he said that there was a time when he considered something else. He said, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. So he was troubled by that, by the moroseness of those who preached Jesus, and he says, well, I'll go into law. And certainly that's the case. Sometimes Christians uh, don't manifest the kind of joy that they ought. Sometimes Christians seem as if they've been marinated in lemon juice or something like that. They're just not at all characterized by the joy of the Lord Jesus. In fact, there's a man by the name of H.L. Mencken. Uh, He was really uh, not a good man and not a Certainly not a Christian, and an opponent of the Christian faith, to be sure. And uh, this is how he characterized the Puritans. Now, we think highly of the Puritans. They're our, our heroes, and we learn so much from them. But this is how Mencken thought about the Puritans. This is how he defined them. Puritanism, he says, it's the haunting fear that somewhere, someone might be happy So, sometimes Christians don't project the kind of joy that they ought. But Jesus said, I have told you these things, that my joy may be in you. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. And it's Nehemiah who tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. So, Christians must be a joyous people. And here, in this context, in the verses leading up to our passage, joy is in the air. But the Pharisees have a question that they believe is calculated to burst the bubble of anybody who dares be joyous. And so we read in verse 33 that they said, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting. The Jews were commanded, at least it's implied in Leviticus 23, 27, that they fast on the Day of Atonement. They should afflict themselves, uh, we're told there in that text. So uh, that was understood to say that on the Day of Atonement, Jews should fast. That's the one time they were commanded to fast. But the Jews often fasted at other times. They fasted during times of trouble, uh, during times of danger. They fasted in response to being convicted about their sin. And so they prayed and they fasted and they covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes and they sought the Lord with prayer and with fasting. The Lord Jesus, we know, fasted and he could have responded to them in that way, but he doesn't. He fasted. What's more, he expected that his followers also would fast. Read about that in Matthew 6. Jesus says, and when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. So he just assumes that there will be times when Christians fast for spiritual reasons. He's not talking about things like intermittent fasting. That's not spiritual fasting. You might do that for your own good, physically, but that's not what the Bible's talking about. It's a time of dedicated seeking the Lord. And the Lord Jesus assumes that there will be times when we do that. But the Pharisees, they distorted this whole idea of fasting. And fasting became part of the fabric of their system of works righteousness. It became something that they thought would earn them favor with God. It became something that they thought could be used to draw out praise from people. Look at me, I'm fasting. They thought it might be something that would earn favor with God and earn the applause of men who watched them. And the result is that in Matthew 6.16, Jesus says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure themselves. They disfigure their faces so that their fasting might be seen by others. And they even had the temerity to boast in front of God about their righteousness and about their righteous deeds and their righteous rituals. And they boasted to God. And you remember that the publican in the temple says to God, thank God I'm not like other men. I'm not like this, well, this sinner over here. Because I, for one thing, I fast twice a week. Usually they fasted Mondays and Thursdays. I'm thankful that I'm not like everybody else. I'm a cut above. I fast twice a week, for instance. And so what's happening with the Pharisees and their kind is that their private devotions aren't private at all. They're parading them in front of God and men, hoping to win applause and praise from both. They were like my friend from many years ago who was always telling me just how long he prayed. Two hours a day, he said. And uh, how deeply moved he was. And people were impressed, he used to tell not just me, but others. And people were impressed, not sure that God was. But Jesus says, don't look gloomy. Because, you see, we're not to cultivate the kind of phony gloominess that the, that the Pharisees cultivated as if that's a sign of piety, because Christians are a joyous people. There's nothing wrong with what's going on. There's nothing wrong with this festivity, this joyous celebration of the great work of grace that God has accomplished in the life of this man. Christians, believers, are a joyous people. So go, as it were, go to Levi and say to him, Levi, are you happy? Matthew, the tax collector, are you happy? And I'm sure his response is absolutely overjoyed. Why is that, Levi? Well, because I've been forgiven. If the Lord should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with God there is forgiveness. So yes, I'm happy Levi would say, I've been washed whiter than snow. Remember what Isaiah said. That's what's happened to me. I've been forgiven of all of my sins. God has cast it into the depths of the sea. He's put it behind His back. Yes, I'm happy. Of course, I'm full of joy. What's more, I'm happy because of knowledge. I know God now. I know Jesus. Look who's sitting at my table. Look who's feasting at the feast that I've put on. It's the Lord Jesus. The forgiver of sins. And he sits at my table. And I commune with him as friend with friend. Yes, I'm a man of joy now. Wasn't before. But I am now. Because I know God. What's more, I have hope. My sins in this world weighed me down. You should have known me before. My sins weighed me down in this world. My sins in the next world would sink me into the pit. And now I'm forgiven. And now, because of that, I have a hope of glory. Forgiveness, knowledge, hope, and purpose. I mean, just look around you. I have purpose. I used to live for money. All I was interested in was making money. I'm a tax collector and I was going to gouge these people and utilize everything at my disposal to build up my financial empire. I'm not interested in that anymore. No, oh, I have a greater purpose and a grander reason for living. Now I live for Christ. Now I speak his word. Now I propagate his gospel and I gather my friends all around me. Look at them. Sinners all, but I've gathered them around me to tell them about Jesus. I've drawn them here so that they might be drawn to Him. I live to speak of Christ. That's my purpose in life. I'm going to make money, I'm going to live, I'm going to work, all of that. But everything takes second place to the privilege of being a Christian in this world, of following the Savior and propagating His gospel. I have a purpose that some of you just don't even understand. Matthew's a man of joy. You're a Christian. You know Christ. You're forgiven of all your sins. You have a a destiny. You have a hope. You have glory that awaits you. And whilst you're here waiting for that, you have a purpose. You walk with God and you live for Christ. Of course you're you're a man. You're a woman of joy. That's why Luther said, a Christian should and must be a cheerful person. If he isn't, the devil is tempting him. So let me ask you: Are you always cheerful? Not me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I remember when I was thinking about this. I remember at the beginning of my most recent burnout, I remembered that, you know, if you had come up to me then and said, "How you doing?" I start crying. That's not good. That's not cheerful. The fact of the matter is, there are times in our lives when that's the situation we're in. You remember Proverbs 25, 20 says, whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. So there's counsel as to how you treat someone who's in tears. Don't be singing songs to them. Well, praise the Lord anyway. You know, something like that. Be a little more sensitive. But um, it also tells us that there are times when we go through seasons of a heavy heart. You know, we're not all bubbly all the time. And there are times when the heart is heavy. So don't take what I'm saying and and walk away and think, oh, what a dreadful person I am. I'm not bubbly. No, I... Sometimes there's a heavy heart. We know that. But you see, one of, the things that, one of the things that helps you out of the pit is the knowledge that objectively and truthfully we have every reason to be joyful. Now, you may not feel it, but you know in your head that objectively and truthfully and according to biblical truth, I have every reason in the world to experience joy now. That's because I belong to Jesus. I know Jesus. I've been saved by Jesus. I am being cared for by Jesus. I am being watched over by Jesus. I am accompanied by Jesus through Jesus. Every step of this journey and every day of my life I am with Jesus and it's this Jesus who ensures that everything in life is made good. And it's this Jesus who will ensure that everything in the next world will be glorious. And so yes, I have objective reasons why I should be a man or a woman or a young person of joy because he has given me his joy and he's given me true foundations for joy in this world. So go ahead and celebrate Matthew and all your friends. Go and celebrate what God has done in your life and Matthew and whoever else has come to Jesus for salvation. You be thankful and you be full of joy. Because you know Jesus. And He's with you. And you'll be with Him, world without end. That's the first thing. Secondly, a troubled time. A, A joyous people, that's us if we're Christians. If you're not a Christian and you're full of joy, you're deceived. You should be weeping. You should be crying out to God in your tears that He might save you. If you're laughing all the way to hell, what a sad journey that is. The Christians are the ones, and Christians are the only ones, who have a reason and a right to be joyous. But the second thing is a troubled time. Let me make two points under this heading. First of all, that there is a time to feast. There is a time to feast. Jesus is asked, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? No, they should be allowed to feast. They should be allowed to celebrate. They should be allowed to be full of joy. And thanksgiving. Don't take that away from them. They have reason. Because the bridegroom's there. If you're at a wedding, nobody's fasting. They're feasting. If you're at a wedding, it's not funereal. It's a time of festivity. Jesus says, don't call on my disciples to to fast now. This is a time of feasting. Because I'm here. Jesus is here. It's a time to rejoice and a time to celebrate. Just go over to Luke chapter 1 and we'll see why that's the case. Luke chapter 1 verse 67. Luke 1 and verse 67 and these are the words of Zechariah. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Rejoice and bless God and celebrate because salvation has come. God has visited. He's drawn near to save a people. And uh, note also verse 78 and verse 79. uh, The tender... The tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace. Yes, the Lord Jesus is here. And so you ought to rejoice. This is a time of celebration. The prophet, like Moses, has arrived. He was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. And the anticipation was, one day there'll be a prophet, just like Moses. Well, here he is. One day there'll be a king, just like David. He's here. One day there'll be a priest, like Melchizedek. And he's here. So you should celebrate. You should rejoice. Ah, you should be overjoyed. My eyes have seen your salvation. Now I can depart, said Simeon. Let me die now, because Jesus is here. Time of celebration, time of festivity. Zechariah 13:1 says, "On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of Israel and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. One day salvation will be provided. One day there'll be a fountain, and if you plunge into that fountain, you'll be whiter than snow, all sins forgiven. That fountain has been established. Jesus is here. Absolutely. It's a time to rejoice, time to be thankful. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land in his day judah will be saved israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which you will be called the lord our righteousness jehovah said can you and jehovah said can you has come he's amongst us i am here jesus says behold the lamb of god john the baptist said this one who would be the righteousness of his people who would deal with their sins, and provide them with righteousness. He is here. It's a time of feasting, and it's a time of rejoicing. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. I'm going to read this whole passage because it's magnificent. Isaiah chapter 11. And as I read through this, remember that the one who would make this a reality was standing before these people. Isaiah, 1, Isaiah 11, verse 1, "...there shall come forth the shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord." The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the, fat, the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the, like the ox." The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's cave. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the one who shall accomplish this, the promised one, has arrived. And he's begun the work of redemption. And this will be reality because of him. And he's here right now. So yes, this is a time of feasting. It's not a day of gloom. It's a day of glory. So while the bridegroom's here, let's celebrate, Jesus says. A time for feasting. But my second point under this heading is a time for fasting. Because notice what Jesus says. Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And then verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. Well, there's a time for feasting. It was that for them. You know, it's also true for us. You and I need to Walk in light of that. Because really the Lord Jesus is still with us and so we still feast. He's not here physically to be sure, but he's with us. I'll be with you right to the end of the age, the Lord Jesus said. He's still with us and as we walk through this world, he's still with us. And he's saved us and his eye is upon us and his arm is around us. And his joy is within us. So yes, we're people of joy. And it's a time still of feasting for us. But it's also a time of fasting. It's a time of trouble. It's a time of trouble. We live in a time of trouble. Jesus says in verse 35, the time will come when they fast. Well, he's talking about the time of his passion because very soon he will be arrested and he will be tried and he will be tortured and he will be condemned and he will be killed and then he will be raised and then he will ascend into glory. These will be troubled times and the disciples would fast. The disciples would be grieved. And you think then of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They had no appetite. They had no real appetite for food. They were way down. And you remember that the disciples were in the upper room and they weren't feasting. They were crying out to God. They weren't there to enjoy themselves. They were there to call upon God because the worst had happened. They didn't understand it. So These were times of fasting. These were times of prayer and fasting and seeking God when they were forgetful of food, and they were calling on heaven, time of his passion. And then it's a time of trouble, the time of our trouble, the time of our trouble. You know, the the book of the Revelation says that uh, after the Lord Jesus leaves and before he returns, it's going to be a time of trouble for us. And read the book of the Revelation and you'll discover that to be the case. Revelation tells us that there will be, oh, there will be madmen and monsters, Now there will be persecutions and plagues, and the church will suffer, and Christians today are dying all over the world. There's a reason we have these notes in the, our bulletins about the persecuted church is because it's happening right now, and we need to pray for them. And Revelation says that's the kind of thing that will characterize the time after Jesus leaves and before he returns. Christians are dying all over the world. This is a time when the church is witnessing and proclaiming the gospel, but it's proclaiming the gospel in the midst of persecution. And the church is being built up, but it's being built up in the midst of a furnace, in the midst of flames. It's the blood of the martyrs that seed for the church. These are days of trouble, times of trouble for the church. This is a time when the church is struggling and the church is fighting against sin within and persecution without. These are times of trouble. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her... And strive to see her fail, against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. Though with a scornful wonder, the world sees her oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. These are days of trouble, and that's why it's time for fasting. Still a time of joy. Still a time of feasting. But Jesus told us in the world, you're going to have tribulation. That's what's going to happen. Sometimes North American Christians are shocked. They're so mean to us. They say terrible things about us. They slander us. Well, get used to it. For centuries, they've been killing us. Now this, the day and age in which we live, Between the first and second Advent, it's the day and age of prayer and fasting. It's a time to lament the state of the world and to weep over the state of the lost. It's a time to cry out to heaven and to call out to God. And we must plead with sinners and we must pray to the Lord. We weep over the lost and we call down blessing from heaven. That's the days in which we live. Time of trouble, day of distress. We feast and rejoice because God has visited his people. He saved us by his grace. And we fast and lament because we live in a fallen world and the lost are everywhere. One day, This will be over. One day, it'll be just time for feasting. One day, the Lord will come back and the glory of the Lord will be everywhere. The wedding feast of the Lamb, the glorified church, the triumphant Christ. And you and I, no more tears in our eyes and no more sin in our hearts. will be there. A time for feasting. In the meantime, let's fast and pray that God might do a great work in us and through us. Glorify His Son in this world. So we're a people then who are a joyous people. We live in a troubled time. And thirdly, we exist in a new era. A new era. 36 to 39. I won't read that. Or maybe I will. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Here's a second parable. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Now, there are, there are two parables here and basically one point. The first parable, that's in verse 36. Now, to understand the first parable about about clothes you need to understand a little bit of background and I, I just need to say to you that in order for this to make sense you need to kind of pretend that you're living in a different era. You need to pretend that you're living in a bygone era because you need to pretend that you're living in a world where if you have holes in your clothes that's a bad thing. Um, for several thousand years several thousand years everybody thought that if you have holes in your clothes it's a bad thing and you'd put a patch on it you put a patch on the elbow cuz it's worn through you put a patch on the knees where it's it's worn through and you'd put a patch on that because well the holes are a bad thing and and now that's what you do you patch things up it's only in recent years that it was discovered that holes are things to be desired. And that's the kind of clothes that's to be bought, not tossed away. So remember then, this is a different era that Jesus is living in. And in those days, when there's discovered that a hole is in your clothing, you take some new stuff and you patch it on the old stuff. And Jesus is saying, that doesn't do any real good because the old stuff is still bad anyway, and now you've also ruined the new stuff. In the second parable, Jesus says that uh, the wine skins, and of course in those days they took animal skins and made uh, containers of, for wine, and if you take animal skins and new skins and pour the wine in, oh, that's fine. But if, if it's old wine skins and they're dried and they're cracked and they're ready to split, and you pour wine in, new wine, and then the wine ferments and and get, gives off gases and expands, well, then it just bursts. And so you've ruined that. And now Lord is saying that well, that doesn't work either. And the the one point that he's making in all of this is that with His coming, with His arrival, with the bridegroom's presence now, everything is new. The new which was promised has arrived. The new which was prophesied is a reality. The Lord Jesus is ushering in a new era. He inaugurates a new covenant. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 8. And the question is, what is it that's so new about this covenant? What is it that's so glorious about the new blessings that it affords us, that far outstrips what believers in the old covenant experienced. Well, you notice in verses 36 to 39, the word new is repeated. That's a big word in that section, and that's why I'm saying our Lord is emphasizing that this is a new era and it's a fabulously new era. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. So what's so new about this? What new blessings do we experience that are so gloriously beyond what they experienced in the old covenant? They were saved by grace through faith in the coming Messiah. And we're saved by grace through faith in the Messiah who has come. But our privileges are better. Our privileges are new. Our privileges are fabulous. I'm running out of time, but I'm going to tell you about some of these new blessings. I hope it thrills you. I hope it makes you excited to be a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, I hope it makes you want to be a Christian. What's it like for us then who are in Christ? Well... We have a new nation. It's not a nation in the Middle East. We're not a physical nation. We're a nation without boundaries. We're a nation that transcends any human boundary. We're a nation drawn from all the nations of the world. The Church of Christ is made up of South Africans and Canadians and, and Dutch and English and Filipino, and brown, and black, and white, and all the rest of the colors. That's just the nation. We're the Israel of God. It's a nation like no other nation's ever been. That's who we are. We're a new people. Second Corinthians five seventeen. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You're part of a new creation. You're a new people. You're part of the new humanity. Jesus is at the head, and this is a new human race. That's what you're part of, drawn from all the nations to make up a new race. You're a new creation in Christ. You're going to live in a new world. That's why I read Isaiah, a new heaven and a new earth. That's what God is doing. You read about the fulfillment of that in Revelation. Now you have a new heart. If you're a Christian, you have a new heart. You have a new center of your being. God promises in Ezekiel, I will give them a new heart. That's why you're so radically different. That's why you can hardly recognize yourself now as opposed to what you were before. Because you have a new heart. The dispositional complex, that which makes you who you are, it's all new. You have a new heart. You have a new temple. We have a new temple. You're the temple. Because God has made his abode in you. God lives in you. The Spirit is in you. You're his temple. And we, all of us together who are Christians, we're the temple of God. It's a new temple. It's not in Jerusalem, it's not on Mount Gerizim. We are the temple. God has made his home in us. We have new access. It's not like in the Old Testament times. Only the high priest could go into the presence of God in the temple. And only the high priest could go only once a year. And then with trembling, everything's changed now. There's a new temple and we have new access. And Romans 5.1 says that Jesus brings us into the presence of God, gives us access, gives us our introduction to the Father. So you and I then have access Like nobody had in the Old Testament. You can go to God. You've already gone to God today. When you woke up, maybe you said, Oh Lord, I feel terrible. Please help me. Or maybe you woke up this morning and said, Oh Lord, I feel wonderful. Thank you. But you've already talked to God. You have access, you see. You have access to the Lord that no one else but a Christian has. And that curtain has come down. You read about that in the scriptures. Torn from top to bottom, the curtain that barred everybody from the presence of God. It's been torn open by Jesus. It's all new now, new blessings, access to God. You have a new relationship. God was never called Father to individual believers in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, when you pray, pray our Father. He gives you that right. He gives you that privilege. He gives you instruction. He says, go and call God Father. I'm going to go back to my Father and your Father, he says in John 20. You can call him Father. You can call him Abba Father. And we're frankly and understandably a little nervous about that. So he gives us the Spirit who helps us to say Father. And the Spirit says, go and call him Father because you're safe because you're loved, because you're covered. Go and call Him Father. You're that close. He loves you like He loves His Son. Call Him Father. These are the blessings we enjoy. As God's new covenant people, you have new power. You have new power. John 14, 16 says, I will ask the Father. He'll give you another helper. The Spirit is our helper, and He'll be with you forever, and He'll give you power to put sin to death. He'll give you power to become more like Jesus. Oh, God's already given us a heart. You have a physical heart that can beat 100,000 times a day, and then it'll keep doing it, keep ticking for the rest of your life, hopefully. But a greater gift is the Spirit who gives us strength to keep going. In the midst of affliction and trouble, He'll keep us going. Sometimes our steps falter, but He keeps us moving forward. He's our helper. He gives us the strength and the power that we need. We have new worship. We don't worship on Mount Gerizim like the Samaritans, and we don't worship on Mount Zion the way the Jews did. Jesus says, there's coming a day you'll worship neither on, I, uh, neither on Gerizim nor Mount Zion. You'll worship in spirit and truth. And we do. We enjoy these privileges, these, these new blessings, That's why we could worship in a park. That's why it doesn't matter what building we're in or what room we're in. Where are we this week? Well, we're downstairs this week. Where are we next week? Well, we're upstairs. Well, I mean, who cares? At one level. We worship in spirit and truth. And wherever we go, we carry the temple with us. New blessings, you see. New worship. I know sometimes Christians don't understand exactly that uh, it's a new era. I know some Christians like to say, well, you know, you, you, got, you got circumcision in the Old Testament, you got baptism in the New, and you're going to draw a line from one to the other. And So we, you know, we baptize our children and so on and so forth. And I want to say that there are times then when, when Christians, you know, we kind of live as if we're in the Old Covenant. Well, you know, we're imperfect, we struggle. Understand that. But the Lord Jesus says, understand this. This is a new day. This is a new era. Oh, you have new blessings. Everything's new. It's fabulous. Oh, it's a a salvation by grace in the Old Testament. We're not denigrating that, but it's a process. And now we're at a new stage that we enjoy. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's not talking about a particular day, a 24-hour. It's talking about a new era. When you sing that, this is the day that the Lord has made. You're talking about this whole new era. Well, rejoice and be glad in it. Thank God for it. And if you're not a Christian, you want to be part of it. There's something deeply wrong with you if you listen to all this and say, I'm not interested. That's crazy. You listen to this, you say, Oh my goodness. Oh, to be a Christian. Oh, to be part of this. Oh, to taste these blessings. How marvelous that would be. You come to Christ then. You believe in the Lord Jesus. You trust Him today, before the day is through. Don't walk out of here without having trusted Christ so that these blessings can be your blessings. Don't ignore me. Don't stick your fingers in your ears and ignore the Lord Christ who calls you today to be saved and invites you to enjoy, oh, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to believe and enjoy these blessings, forgiveness, forgiveness, A relationship with God and forever with Him. Come to Him today. And Christian. (laughs) we're blessed. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we pray Your blessing on Your Word. Use it to sanctify us, cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Use it, we pray, to win souls to the Lord Jesus, that they might taste and see that He's good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.